Good morning, church family. My name is Terry. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm looking forward to sharing from God's Word with you today. Well, it's definitely not a good idea to start a conversation this way. It's questionable whether you should start a sermon this way, and definitely don't start a first date like this. But what has been the hardest time of your life? What's been the hardest time, the hardest season, most difficult that you've walked through? It is a loss of a loved one. Maybe a strained relationship going down. Maybe it had to do with your job. In the past two years, there's been a lot of opportunity for these things. The past two years, maybe, it's, maybe it is in these past two years that you experienced the hardest, most difficult, most painful moments of your life. And when you looked at that moment, you look back at that moment, or maybe there's many of them, you may well ask, why? Why did this happen? And you may ask it about God. Why, God, did you let this happen? Why are you bringing this about? If you're a God who is sovereign, powerful, purposeful in what you do, why this? And in those moments when we don't see the reasons, we don't see the purpose, we don't see the rationale behind these things that happen, these sufferings, what can we hold on to then? What can we as Christians hold on to when we don't understand God's purposes in the midst of extreme suffering? Well, thankfully, the scriptures are not silent on these things. The scriptures speak to us in this. And so let's turn there. Let's turn to the book of Job. book of Job's in the Old Testament. It's before the book of Psalms. And we'll be covering a lot of ground today in Job, so you can have it open for reference, but we're certainly not going to read all of it. Yeah, you can turn to the book of Job. And our story begins introducing Job. He's a righteous man. It's emphasized all throughout it. Job was a righteous man. He was blameless. He feared the Lord. He shunned evil. Job was a righteous guy. He had his spiritual life altogether. He'd be the kind of guy you see and like, oh, he... He's really into it. He's blameless. He follows the Lord. He fears the Lord. And not only does he have that part together, he also has his, the rest of his life together too. He's got uh, thousands of livestock, camels, oxen, donkeys. He's got 10 children, seven sons, and three daughters. This guy's doing well. They say he's the greatest in the East. Job was a great man. And did I mention he was blameless? Well, someone in heaven takes notice. And a window opens in heaven, and we see uh, the throne room of God. And there, an adversarial angel comes, we'll call him Satan, comes before God. And God decides to play a little show and tell and says, Satan, 
Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. Blameless, fears the Lord, walks in righteousness. What do you think? Satan doesn't like that. It's like, does Job fear you for no reason? Strike him. Strike his possessions. Take away all that he has, and he's going to curse you to your face. God accepts the challenge, but says, don't touch Job. So Satan now has clearance to take away all that Job has. And the question is, will Job maintain his righteousness without all the material benefits? Or does he actually just follow God because God blesses him? Well, it was probably the worst day of Job's life. He's minding his own business. Maybe he's in his backyard. And a servant runs up and says, the Sabians came and they took all of your donkey and all of your oxen. They just rushed upon us. We couldn't do anything about it. They killed all the other servants who were guarding them. I alone am left. They took everything. I'm sorry. And almost in an instant, another servant runs up and says, the fire of God, the weirdest thing happened, the fire of God just fell from heaven and burned up all of your sheep and all of the people guarding it. It was crazy. Just fire fell down, consumed all of them. And I'm the only one who escaped. It was crazy. And then it continues. A third servant runs up. All of your camels, the Chaldeans came. They swept it. We couldn't do anything. It was all of a sudden, they just came. They took all of your camels. They're all gone. Every last one of them. They slew every one of your servants. I alone am left. I'm sorry. Well, this might sound like um, Job lost some family pets or something. But this would be like, or this, this was their livelihood, this was their money, this was everything. And this, is, this would be like you're at the grocery store, and uh, you're getting dinner or something, getting your food, and then someone steals your wallet. You realize someone stole it. And as you're, just as you're realizing that, someone is hacking into your bank account and taking all of your money out of your checking account, down zero. They also take it out of your rainy day fund, right? And so that's gone too. You're down to zero in your bank account. And as you're searching for your phone to call the police, call your credit card company, you realize they took that, so you don't even have Apple Pay. And then someone is simultaneously hacking into your retirement, all your investments, and they're gone. Zero. Everything you worked for for decades, shot. You have no retirement. You have nothing to buy dinner for your family. That's what this was like for Job. All of his livelihood gone in an instant, erased, completely gone. But it gets worse. Another servant runs up to him and says, I don't know, I really don't know what happened, but we, I was, it was crazy. Just the walls, the, the wind. Was, I, I mean, okay, I, was, I was in the house with all of your sons and all of your daughters. We were just having lunches. It was crazy, and then suddenly the wind came, the walls were flexing, everything was shaking, and the whole thing just fell, crushed everyone, blood, screaming. Uh, I'm sorry, none of them made it. All ten of your children, 
gone. I mean, the, the animals and losing that might be foreign to most of us. But this is a sorrow that's not foreign to all of us, many of us maybe. Uh, losing a child is painful. You know, just the idea of it is hard. Um, and many of us have walked through that, know the sorrows of that. Job lost all ten, all at once, just like that. The memories, the future with them the relationships with all of his children, gone. And if that wasn't bad enough, Satan comes again and says, you know, Job Job hasn't given up his integrity. He's lost everything, but he hold on on to it. And Satan says, "Mm, it wasn't a fair fight. Strike down Job himself. Then he'll curse you. He'll curse you, God. And so Satan strikes Job, soars from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He's in pain. He's in agony. He's lost his health on top of everything else. He sits in the ground in pain, scraping away at his sores with pottery. He's lost everything. Possessions, children, his health. Oh, but he hasn't lost everything. He has his wife still. But she's going through a bit of a difficult time, understandably. She also lost ten children. Who gave birth to those children? Who was, in, who was pregnant with them for nine months? Who raised them up? Who lost them and all of her livelihood as well? She's going through a hard time. And she says, Job, will you still hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. His wife's in despair. She wants him to die. She probably wants to die herself. Uh, He's lost everything. But then what Job says is amazing. In light of losing his children, all of his livestock, all his wealth, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I depart. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in response to his health being taken away, he says to his wife, shall we not receive from the Lord's hand good as well as evil? In all this, the scriptures say, Job did not blame God. Job did not sin against God. Losing all of that, Job didn't raise his fist, his words up against the Almighty. What would you do? What would you do if you lost, when you lose something very dear to you? Maybe a child, work doesn't go your way, don't get into the college of your choice. Relationships don't go the way you want them to. Develop sickness, maybe terminal sickness. Will you still worship God then?
Well, Job's uh, friends hear of this, and they come and they visit him. When they come and they see him, three friends, they come and see him. He's sitting in the ground in ashes, and they don't even recognize him. He's such a mess. And they come, they sit with him. Seven days and seven nights, they're with him. They don't say a word. Sit on the ground in the ashes, mourn with him. And it's in those seven days and nights, silence, emotional pain, agony, that questions start coming up inside for all of them. Why? Why would God do this? What's going on here? Something's afoot. But why is this happening? And you'd wonder that too. I mean, let's say there's someone at church and they, you know, they're really godly, they have a big family, all the things are going well for them. And then just in one day, everything goes wrong. It's not just that there's a sickness that they find out about. It's not just that they lose someone. It's everything. The next Sunday, their pew is empty besides them. And they're deathly ill. They've lost all their wealth. All in one day? I think we'd ask questions too. What's going on? Why? Why God? So Job Job begins speaking. Seven days, he finally speaks. And he's just bereft of life. He, He wants to die. In fact, he wishes he had never been born. He says, would that I had never even seen the light of day or I had died when I was young. Better that I'd never even existed so I wouldn't feel this much pain. Would that the Lord would have never had me here at all. That's deep grief, deep pain, deep sorrow. What do you say to that as one of his friends? How do you comfort someone? How do you speak to someone in this? Well, Eliphaz, the first friend, he's waited seven days. He sat with Job, said nothing. That's pretty good listening, right? That's pretty good, you know, being with with someone in suffering. Uh, That's a long time. So he decides to speak up. And he's tentative at first. He takes his, takes his time. You know, he's uh, careful with how he talks to him. You mind if I say a few thoughts, Job? It's just, just thinking aloud. In Job 4, 7, and 8, remember, who, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen, those, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they reap the same. If any of you can uh, speak indirect language, uh, that means, Job, you've done, you've done something wrong, and you need to repent. Bildad decides to speak up his second friend. If you will seek God, oh, sorry, this is Job 8, 5 through 6. If you will seek God... And plead with the Almighty for mercy. If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. He's saying God never judges wrongly. God never judges unjustly. So perhaps if you just plead to God for mercy, he'll restore you. Third friend Zophar leans in. He's the most encouraging. Job eleven four through 6, if you want to turn there. Job 11, 4 through 6. 
For you say, Job, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Definitely believes in total depravity. Saying, Job, I know you say you're pure, but honestly, you're, you're not. And in fact, you deserve worse. But if you turn, you turn from your iniquity, whatever it is, God will lift up your head again. They're basically all telling Job, you've sinned, do some, uh, repent. You've done something, turn. And, and they've got some basis there. They've got reason to say this. They're not just drawing this out of their own heads. Uh, you've read Proverbs? What happens in Proverbs? If you do good, you receive what? Good, right? If you do bad, you receive what? Bad, right? That's, that's how it works. Uh, in Proverbs 14, 11, it says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And that's all throughout Proverbs, right? You, you do right or you follow uh, in the fear of the Lord. You walk in righteousness. What happens? Good things, right? Flourishing. God puts you on a path in that direction. If you, do, if you ignore the wisdom of God, you ignore the law of God, then what? Destruction. Calamity. Life doesn't go as well. You mess around with the immoral woman in Proverbs. You are scooping fire onto your lap. You will get burned, saying. If you do good, good things come. If you do bad, bad things come. It's not just Old Testament. Galatians 5, or sorry, Galatians 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But is the reverse true? Is the reverse true of that? If you are experiencing good from God, uh, you have big family, money, all that kind of stuff, does that necessarily mean you have done good in God's eyes? You've done righteous things. If you are experiencing bad, death, calamity, suffering, have you necessarily done bad? Is that true? That's what Job's friends are saying. They're saying, Job, bad things are happening to you. Bad things are happening in your life. Therefore, you must have done something bad. Is that what's really happening here? Job doesn't think so. In fact, he maintains it strongly throughout the, the book. He says, I will go to my grave maintaining my uprightness. He says, I will die defending my righteousness, my rightness. I have non, done nothing wrong, and yet God is doing this to me. I have not done anything bad deserving these bad things. I've done good 
and yet I still have received the bad. And here's where things take another turn. Job's defending his own righteousness, but then he begins to call God to account. So sure is he that I am righteous, I've done nothing wrong, I will defend myself before the Almighty. In fact, I'm going to call him right now, and I'm going to put him on the phone, and I'm going to tell him what it is. I'm going to tell him that I've done right, I've uh, been righteous in all that I've done, and I'm going to win, because I'm right. In fact, he goes farther though than that and starts saying, but even if I do, I know God, or I'm beginning to know, see that God will still call me guilty. I've done nothing wrong. But he's going to twist the case. He's going to change the verdict. And he's going to still say I'm blamed and I'm wrong, but I've done nothing. But he's going to do that. God's going to twist it that way. That's the place Job was in. Job gets feisty with God. Job gets feisty with his friends. His friends get feisty back. They go back and forth, becoming on stronger with him. No, Job, you've clearly done something wrong. I knew a guy who was wicked, and I saw everything get destroyed by him or in his life. If you do wrong, Job, you must have. There's no other way. And Job maintains it to the end. Job 31, he lays out a basically like a curse upon himself. If I've done he lays out all these sins. If I've been uh, adultery in this way, if I've lied, if I've stolen, if I've he just lists out everything. If I've done any of this, then let condemnation come on me. It's like his final stand, he drops the mic, and he's done. So who's right? Are Job's friends right? And he actually did do something wrong that he needs to repent from in order to appease God. Or is Job right? And he's actually blameless. He's actually righteous. And God has messed up. God's done a misstep in justice. Well, it seems like it's a stalemate. He's going to be right. This is 30 chapters of this going on and on. No resolution. Then, someone else steps out of the shadows onto the scene. His name's Elihu. And I don't know where he came from. Uh, Perhaps he had mastered the ability of standing so incredibly still that he became invisible to the eye. I don't know, but he heard everything, and he's angry. He's angry at Job saying, because Job justified himself instead of God. And he's angry at Job's friends because they had no answer for Job. They couldn't answer all his questions, all his upholding of his righteousness. Elihu's not happy. And he says, I was waiting to hear wisdom from you all. I was waiting to hear, but none of you have wisdom. I'm younger than you all, so I was waiting to hear the aged speak but I found no wisdom in your answers. So now I will speak and listen to me. And Elihu comes and says, the Lord can and does use suffering at times to purify and save men from the pit. 
He says there are times when the Lord will use calamity to uh, rid people, rid men of pride, and to essentially save them. In Job 33, 12 through 18, Job 33, 12 through 18, Elihu says, Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So Elihu says God may use trials and sufferings to turn men away from pride, from evil. So before they've sinned, right, he's using this to keep them from sin, perhaps. Keep them from death. So Elihu breaks apart this idea that if you are experiencing suffering, you must have sinned because God may use it other ways. But he also still tells Job, Job, you are also wrong. He's told his friends, you're not right. Job, neither are you. God is still just. In Job 34, 10 through 12, Says, therefore, hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Job, you have raised an empty cry against the Almighty. God is still just, and he maintains that. And he ends his speeches with this in Job 37. Job 37, 23 and 24. Elihu says, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. I imagine Job and his friends might not have been too happy with Elihu. They've gone back and forth for 30 chapters or so, and now he comes and says, you're both missing it. Perhaps there's a rejoinder coming. Perhaps Job's going to defend himself. But then a wind starts blowing. It picks up speed for full force until it becomes a whirlwind around them. You can imagine their wind picking up. The trees are blowing everywhere. They're shielding their face from the wind. They feel its power, its destructive force, its unstoppableness, and its unseenness. And out of that whirlwind, God finally speaks. Is Job going to get his chance? Maybe he can rise up and tell the Almighty what he's been missing. Is Job going to be able to defend himself? 
Well, God doesn't give Job that chance. Neither does God tell Job the reason for his suffering. He doesn't pull up the text chain between him and Satan. He doesn't show him this is why this has happened. Instead, God shows Job his sovereign, omnipotent wisdom. God holds up his wisdom to Job instead, his creative power. He asks him a bunch of questions that show God's wisdom being lifted up. I'm going to skim through a bunch of them. In Job 38, I'll start there. God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or who shut the sea with, in the sea with doors when it burst forth out of the womb? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So did God vindicate Job's righteousness? Did God give him an answer? Did God tell him why all his sufferings had happened? Now, God instead holds up his wisdom, saying, I alone in wisdom form the earth. I alone in wisdom make all that you see come about. I alone am the one who has power and understanding enough to rule all of this. So instead of reasons, God holds up wisdom. God holds up his wisdom before Job and exalts that before him. So let's return to our original question. How do we, as Christians, how do we, or what do we hold on to when we don't understand God's purposes in the midst of extreme suffering? What do we hold on to then? When we don't see the purposes, we don't see the reason, what's left to hold on to? Again, perhaps God doesn't hold up reasons all the time. He holds up his wisdom. And because of his wisdom, we can trust his character. And so we can hold on to God's unchanging character even when we don't understand our suffering, because God alone has the wisdom, the sufficient, God alone has the wisdom sufficient to govern this world. We can hold on to God's unchanging character, 
even when we don't understand what's going on, we don't understand their suffering, we don't see the reasons why. Because God has, God alone has the sufficient wisdom to govern the affairs of the world. And so the, the rock that we hold on to in the midst of suffering without an explanation is God's wisdom, that he alone is wise, that he has reasons, understanding, purposes that are beyond us. And because of that, even when we don't see the reasons, we can trust his character, his goodness, his sovereignty, his love, all that can remain, and we can hold to that and trust it because God has wisdom we do not possess. When Job saw the wisdom of God, his response in Job 40, verse 4 and 5, says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. And in Job 42, verse 2, as I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When your life goals aren't met, when death visits the family far too early, when your relationships are broken apart by sin, when sickness dashes your dreams for a future, even in this, we must not accuse God of wrongdoing. Neither should we automatically turn and point a finger towards ourselves that I've done something wrong. God must be punishing me. God rules in wisdom that's far beyond our capacity. And we can trust that he is unchanging and good even when we don't understand how. Now, I know for me, thinking about, um, thinking about Job's suffering, uh, it's still challenging, though, um, I mean, he, he was righteous, the scriptures say that. I mean, the author makes it really clear. Job's blameless, the beginning of the story. And yet the suffering is incalculable. I can't even imagine how painful that was. And so where is the justice of God? Does, how does this work in God's justice? Well, God's justice is, his wisdom is way deeper way more sophisticated than ours. But let me give one picture that might help. How can God cause a righteous man to suffer? How can God bring someone who is righteous, never done anything wrong, and carry him through suffering and death? Well, God has done that at cost to himself. And it was through the death of a righteous man who did nothing wrong, the suffering of a righteous man, completely righteous, that God brought about perfect justice to the world, that God brought about righteousness, that he brought about hope and showed his ultimate goodness. 
And this was Jesus' suffering and death. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. The godly suffered for the ungodly. How then will we answer God's wisdom? This was Jesus' life and death for us. And now if anyone believes in Jesus, they can be saved, not because of their righteousness, not because they deserved it and did good things, but because God, in his wisdom, sent Christ to embrace the ultimate suffering so that we can be adopted into his family and have life forevermore. This was all through the suffering of a righteous man. And so I would submit God's justice is far deeper than ours. The way his justice works, the way his wisdom works, our wisdom pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. He alone possesses the wisdom to judge the world with equity. The righteous may suffer in this life, and yet in the wisdom of God, Jesus walked this very road of suffering with us. We don't know how our stories are going to end. Job's actually ends with God vindicating him uh, and his righteousness and restoring to him um, his wealth twice over. He has twice the amount of livestock uh, at the end, twice the amount of wealth, and he has seven more sons and three more daughters. God may or may not give us earthly blessing after we suffer. It may be that we experience particular suffering that lasts our entire lives and never goes away. And yet in that time, may we hold on to the unending wisdom of God that holds our lives, that we surrender our own thoughts, our bitterness maybe, our anger over what we think should have been and instead hold on to God's good character. Because we are not promised answers to all of our suffering, but we are given the promise of an unshakable, unchanging, all-wise Father in heaven who rules the universe by his wisdom and has given us his Son, that we might find in him the forgiveness of our sins, and in the life to come, full relief from all of our sufferings. So let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we like Job, don't want to speak into places that uh, we have no right to speak. Lord, you know the difficulties of living in this fallen world. And you know we struggle with the pain and the sorrow here. Lord, would you give us confidence in your unchanging goodness even when we can't see it? You are the only wise God. And so, Lord, we walk humbly before you, knowing that even if reasons are hidden from us, you rule. You rule the world by your wisdom, by your might. And so give us wisdom to walk, we pray. Would you lift before our eyes the cross of Jesus, the wisdom of God, 
Show us again how all your goodness passes before us in him and that we can hold on to this for all our days that you give until he comes again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.